I'd like to formally apologize to Prince for arguing with her 10 minutes ago about okay. doing this podcast. You better all watch this freaking recording because I put our friendship on the line for it. We were just downstairs having an incredibly passive aggressive argument about the fact that I wanted to record on a video tonight, the recording for this podcast. It's currently 8.30 p.m. And Jen was like, I don't want to. And I was like, Genevieve, the future of this podcast relies on us doing a recording tonight. And I was like, I don't want to fill in my eyebrows. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Unsolicited, the pop culture podcast with a philosophical twist, the one you definitely didn't ask for. We're your Sydney hosts, Jen Kubray and Prince Wilkins-Wheat, and in today's episode, we're talking about Legally Blonde and the appointment of Justice Jago to the High Court of Australia and women in the legal profession overall. But first, Prudence recently had her birthday. Oh my God, yes! Happy birthday, Prudence. She's Thank now you. in her mid-twenties. Shut your mouth. <laughs> She's 24. Okay, so do you have any recommendations this week? Well, as some of us may know, some of us may not. We were traveling down to the South Coast and on that South Coast trip, we both had, I think, a very universal experience of any great Australian holiday of going to the Macca's drive through <laughs> So both of our recommendations are Macca's related. Uh, mine is get involved in the Macca's Monopoly. Um, I recently peeled off the Macca's Monopoly of the chips and I got three months free of Audible books. It does sound like I'm sponsored by Macca's, but I'm not. I'm just, you know, sharing the love. We're just big fans. Yeah. Um, and to continue with that, I highly recommend getting a frappe from mm. McDonald's. I get the chocolate frappe. Our other housemate got the coffee frappe and she was like, this is the best thing I've ever consumed. Mm. Uh, it's an underrated drink. Get it wherever there's a McCafe. <laughs> but do not get a Coca-Cola, as Genevieve unfortunately learned. You do not want to open a Coke while you're driving 100 kilometers per hour on, like, you know, the Princess Highway. Yep. It was a sticky ride. Anyways, <laughs> what is your anti-recommendation? So we're bringing back the anti-recommendations because there is something that has overwhelmed us mm. in a negative way to mm. the point where we must platform it and that is heartbreak high mm. we both watched the first episode last week yes. and i was so upset yes this came highly recommended from like every person i kind of knew who was left wing at university which shocked me because when i watched it with jen i was like uh this is the <laughs> it's most, so cringe it's so cringe it's like the Australian version of sex education if sex education was poorly written and really just bad. Just yeah, bad. and we don't want to bag on, you know, like Australian productions because we care about that stuff. Yeah. But we also think that it should be good and I shouldn't just blindly like it. Exactly. Um, so we will potentially give you a full review in future. Yeah. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I was going to say what my news stuff, um, story was going to be. It's this. They found a sarcophagus in Egypt of a pharaoh that ruled after Tutankhamun, and it's thought that it could bring some more information to like a really dark period in Egyptian history, ancient mm -hmm. Egyptian history. Watch the National Geographic um, series on this and then watch the first episode of the new season of SNL and let me know your thoughts. But in the meantime, we're going to move on to our first segment on Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde is a 2001 comedy film starring Reese Witherspoon as Elle Woods, a sorority girl from Bel Air who gets into Harvard Law School after her boyfriend dumps her for a smarter and more serious girl in order to get him back. It's a coming-of-age film about overcoming stereotypes, not judging a book by its cover, discovering what you're capable of, and why it's so much fun to be a lawyer. The story is based on Amanda Brown's novel of the same name and based on her own experiences at Stanford Law School, where she felt her interest in fashion and beauty didn't line with her peers. It was a box office hit and is considered by many, mainly us, <laughs> as a classic. A sequel and musical have since been made and we hear that a third movie is in the works. What? There's a third movie? Oh. It's in the works. <laughs> <laughs> Read the script. <laughs> um, so onto that, we want to break down some of our favourite parts of the film. Obviously, it's iconic. So I guess as female law students, how significant did this film play in your decision to go to law school 
Um, <laughs> I don't know if there was a direct causal relationship between the two. It was significant in my story. I was like, oh, she could, you know, you could have it all. Yeah. You can be hot and also go to law school. First, let's just talk about the overall character development mm. uh, because I think it is like really great that the central theme is really not romantic. It's just about like her literally becoming like good at something mm. <laughs> and realizing that she's intelligent. And I actually think. There's not that many films like that for women. Mm. It's like the reverse arc. It's like not just like a, a woman coming to herself and finding herself through romance. It's like the romance was really distracting who she really wanted to be and then she came into herself. Like she she joined Harvard Law for her ex-boyfriend, but she stayed for herself and it became a development of character rather than a romance. Yeah, yeah. And like just that you can like discover that you're really actually like capable yeah. if you apply yourself. That's just a really nice message. Yeah. The other, obviously, beloved part of the film is obviously the montage where she starts working hard. It's like a very motivating section where you're like, I can get my life in order and I can like pass the LSATs and get into Harvard Law if I just like look hot and run on my treadmill and read my law textbook. Yeah. It's like after she goes to that party, which she thinks is a costume party, but isn't dressed as like a bunny. Um, and then she immediately leaves the party to buy a MacBook <laughs> and turn her life around. Um, and you just see her, you know, studying, treadmilling, reading. That's about it. Yeah, looking hard. It's, and... it's that easy, guys. <laughs> yeah, I want her strength of mind. Like, this is the interview where she's talking about where, the, where, you know, where she wants to go, what her preferences are. And she's like, oh, I'm only applying to Harvard Law. And the person who she's talking to is like, you know, do you have any backup options? And she's like, nope. Just Harvard. I'm like, I wish I had that confidence in myself. Yeah, but she only wants to go to Harvard because that's where her ex is going to be. It's not like she actually wants to be a lawyer but in the a, beginning. It's the strength of mind to pursue your it's goals. It's kind of blind confidence. Mm. It's like a confidence of the like overprivileged who have never thought that they couldn't do something. Yeah, I think blind confidence and courage are like one hair from each other. Like they're so they're so similar. The other obvious great. Um, or like weird moment of it was the video essay that she used to do her submission. So in order to get into Harvard, she had to write, she had to have two statement letters, um, which are like letters of recommendation. And then she had to write an essay about why she personally should go to Harvard. And instead of doing that, she created a little video, which was deeply amusing. Iconic. But would never get her into <laughs> Harvard. But that's why I think the scene is so clever because like the video cuts and then it cuts to all of the um, men on the admissions board. And they're all like, rationalizing why she should get in and so it's kind of like oh it's because they think she's attractive which the film is kind of uncritical of because it's not like (laughs) that deep Um, well I actually thought a really early scene that I think is actually very good screenwriting is the scene where she is in the shop with her two best friends and she needs to get a dress um, for her date that night because she thinks Warner um, is going to propose Mm. and she um, is trying on this dress and then the saleswoman says to that fellow saleswoman, like, there's nothing I love more than, like, a dumb blonde, mm-hmm. pulls off the sales tag from a dress, tries to get her into paying full price for it, and then Elle is observant. She knows the trends. She knows what was last <laughs> season. She also knows that um, this woman is trying to trick her because she has, like, misdescribed the fabric or something. <laughs> and then she's like you picked the wrong girl like i'm not stupid i'm Mm. not gonna like pay full price for that showing not telling Mm. i also like the fact that she used the very thing that you know we consider her to be stupid for as like a a weapon to like actually um prove that she's actually intelligent like she used fashion to exert herself and she proved that it's its own language its own world that can be used um um as a weapon and which actually came into use in the final call it scene yeah Um, speaking of what's your favorite outfit um, I feel like my favorite outfit is it's like the really niche one where she's on the MacBook and like someone's tapping on the window being like, come and party. And she's like, oh, I want to go party. And then the other friend's like, no, you can't. You have to get your LSATs. And she's wearing like a little blue like thing and her hair's up. And it's like, that's like a really cute, like feminine study outfit. I'm like, I would wear that. <laughs> Isn't it just like a tracksuit? No, it's um, like a little, it's like a little top and hair up. And it looks because that's what you look like when you're studying. <laughs> yeah. I look as hot <laughs> and just like carefree as that. What about you? Um, I think this is really lame. I like all the stuff she wears to work. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wait, are we talking about the second one? No, the first one, like, she, um... 
when she's been oh, turning at the law firm. You're right. She's wearing some nice, like, like blazers. Really fashionable, like, workwear. Yeah, um, I agree. Which is quite, like, nice and expensive. I hate the outfit that she wears on her first day. Oh, the, you know, the, the, the weed. Dre- like, it's a dressing gown, like, a yes. teal velvety dressing gown I do hate that and one. a tie yes. and a pink shirt and the glasses yes as a rule of thumb yeah. i hate every like outfit that involves the chihuahua in the bag i just <laughs> I, I hate the aesthetic and i also hate what she wears in the courtroom like that big pink dress oh but that was like oh, it's iconic. iconic but not not for me um also going <laughs> to the law classes i i find it the most obscene um you know hollywood trait that these law classes always seem to be overwhelmingly dramatic like there'll be there'll be a scene where professor stromwell who is played by holland taylor who side note i absolutely love she's also in like other things like how much mother not how much mother two and a half men anyways it's a side note she um basically gives this aristotle quote in the opening you know class of their semester and then she asks someone you know who who said it and he's like, oh, Aristotle. And she's like, would you stake your life on that? And he's like, yes. And he, she was like, well, would you stake this gentleman's life on that? And it's like, this would absolutely never happen in a class. Like, yes, like there'll be the Socratic method where you're expected to know the answers and they'll like, they'll prod you and interrogate you. But like on matters of law, not like these ridiculous, like inspirational quotes. Well, do you think the law is reason free from passion? Mm. Or do you think it. passion is a key ingredient? As it, as, she, as as <laughs> Elle Woods concludes in her final speech, um, I think passion is probably a key ingredient. I, I don't think you can do well at law without being passionate about it. You don't reckon? I think you can. Well, what are we? How are we defining passion? Like, I I think passion. Passion like, I back then it would be like emotion. emotion. I think there's emotions tied up in the law. Well, yeah, in the, in the way that it's just like. A product of context. And um, another big thing that I think stuck out to me about this was the sexual harassment that happened in the, the workplace. Yes. So her professor ends up being, you know, puts his hand on her thigh and that kind of implies that, you know, they could have some sort of relationship and that was, you know, mm. acceptable. Um, that's interesting. Obviously, that does, as we know, happen in workplace environments, especially in the law. It's particularly difficult in the court system because, you know, Unlike any other workplace, there isn't a, a human rights department. Human rights. There isn't a HR department. And you mean like in like if you work at the courts? At the courts, exactly. At the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court. Um, and that's obviously a big issue. Um, it's a bit of a boys' club as well in a lot of these spaces. And so I remember when I first started doing law, certain people in my life, aka my family, wa- like literally warned me that like prudence, make sure like you know if you're going to wear this skirt to this workplace, like be careful. Like there was, there's, I think that's very much. Um, something people will think about especially young women well I think the I like the way they deal with it in the film because the way she reacts to it is like he only hired me because he thinks I'm like an attractive woman of Mm. course like and it really brings back all her imposter syndrome like she thought she'd done so well in impressing this professor and getting this coveted internship and then she's like he just like wanted to sleep with me and it like completely shatters her confidence um and which it does for like a lot of women who like you know get hired to work for a judge or anything like that in that very which is like a particularly intimate context Mm. um but also like she already had that imposter syndrome and she already like came in with this sense that she was you know just like pretty and that was her only asset and to have that like confirmed Mm. for you is like very very like damaging Mm. um and like that's why a lot of women like self-select out of those environments um Mm. and I think the way that they like dealt with it was good and I like that like her the big win for her like the plot develops away from her trying to get her boyfriend back and the big win for her was like not only winning the case but like one-upping yeah like overcoming yeah yeah and like yeah, the the sexist environment that she was placed in, where she was just treated like the the greatest asset she brought to the the whole situation was that she was a beautiful woman, not that she was intelligent, and that's why the courtroom scene is so significant. Yeah, because, and it's like yeah. her doubling down on like her personal knowledge, her background, and also like being a good advocate mm-hmm. and one upping the professor because, as we know, like she was working as an intern for this professor who also worked like part time, like as like a criminal attorney, and um she has a good relationship with the client is the client fires the professor and then she actually like (laughs) represents the client in court which like under some fake law so unrealistic (laughs) a first year can do um and yeah it's it's a very good scene i agree um yeah i like the courtroom scene 
though again entirely unrealistic if you actually based it on the law <laughs> so let's go back to that do you think generally this is a realistic reflection of what law school is like um well in my experience no <laughs> i haven't been to harvard law school and i think it's a bit different because everyone there is doing a, a juris doctor mm. or a jd everyone's slightly older mm. um and they've all done a degree prior and they're all a lot more like gung-ho about like doing like being practicing lawyers mm. um and obviously it's like harvard so it's like everyone is insane it's very costly you have to make a very significant financial investment yeah everyone's probably also like yeah really wealthy yeah (laughs) um so i think it's like a pretty narrow like elite environment um I but, think I think you know the actual classroom environment of like everyone furiously typing on their laptops, everyone wearing wearing quick cool colors, like everyone kind of just being focused on themselves is like probably mm-hmm. quite accurate. Obviously, inaccurate is the drama aspect, but I think the high pressure situation is very normal. Like the fact that you always have to study, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's pretty, yeah, and that like, is cutthroat. Yeah, and like the, the how nervous you are when you're like on call and have to answer questions directed to you by like the professor. I think that's all. Yeah like has been experienced i think you know on her first day when she like shows up with her like heart-shaped notepad and her fluffy pen and starts like writing notes and everyone's like furiously typing on their laptops it is like that like someone will be like all right so um you don't need to write any of this down let's just go through this in like the first lesson of the semester and they're like okay so in week five you're gonna have an assignment and everyone's like (laughs) yeah it's just like a wave of like typing um so yeah it's like Obviously, those parts are kind of realistic, but obviously, like, itself. Itself. And also, like, no. the whole stakes of, like, if my, I'm going to take, like, three students with the top to become my interns who will work on an actual case, like, bullshit. That, that would not ever would happen. happen. Um, obviously, this film is very significant for the subversion of the dumb blonde stereotype. How much do we care about subverting the blood dumb blonde stereotype prudence? <laughs> yeah, as a blonde, no, um, I I think it's 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 interesting because obviously <laughs> there's been so many video essays that I haven't watched on this subject, so I, I feel the pressure to have a good take that I don't actually have. Um, obviously like the bimbo blonde stereotype is also a product of sexism because that creation of that woman, like the Marilyn Monroe woman, was itself like um an object of desire that was out of her control and to see someone take back and give flesh to a character or an object is itself I think a very powerful act but in of itself I mean I mean it sort of buys into the stereotype and then subverts it like she's not like not you know superficial or materialistic or like rich or silly or like giggly she's all those things and capable which I I kind of almost like more because she didn't have to like agree compromise those aspects of her personality things that she enjoyed the way she dressed any of that yeah I like that it goes into like you don't have to be masculine to be respectable or respected like I think there's a real sense that unless you kind of just become quite harsh and cold and ruthless like you're not going to survive in this world but she like maintains like a quite I think feminine warmth like just stereotypically feminine warmth and um maintains all the kind of the a stereotypically girly aspects of yeah. her personality and she can still thrive and I think that is something that I do view as defined rather than going into like the cold like corporate like suits or like wearing like pants like she has to do all these things so that she's respected by male peers but it's like she's uncompromisingly herself and I think at the end of the day we can talk about white feminism and we can talk about capitalism in relation to Elle Woods as a subject but she still has the value of showing you that you should be yourself in that situation and not compromise to meet like the sexist environment that you're part of yeah I also think I do this a lot and I know it's like internalized misogyny when you see someone who's like very beautiful mm. um and I'm like oh maybe she's not that bright mm, of course um you see someone you think they're like so pretty that they probably like aren't that friendly or they probably aren't like that clever um because we're taught that those things like can't coexist mm-hmm. um in someone or if you can't be that feminine and that assertive like those things don't go together either uh, there's and like that internalized misogyny is like particularly strong in law I remember like I was talking to my friend about this when we were interviewing for clerkships and we um had interviews with like female partners and we were both like oh I would almost prefer if I was being interviewed by a man and we were like let's unpack this why is Mm. that and it was because we were like we feel like 
somehow like we'd be less threatening to like a male partner and they would be more interested in us and like wanting to talk to us and like just be more likely to want to have a conversation to us whereas women we like always view as like other competition or women are more likely to judge one another on different factors other than like your cv or something Mm. um and on your nature and i find that like super interesting like i think of myself as like competing with other women for for like half of the clerkship positions and like competing with everyone um i also think pretty privilege also comes into all of this like for sure obviously ella woods i think would be successful because she she is like the full package like people like I don't know how to no, describe but, but it. No, but definitely pretty privilege is a thing, but I think there's a thing where, like, people won't take you seriously if you're too attractive, especially mm. if you're very, like, young-seeming or young-looking. You know Elizabeth Holmes, who is that, like, disgrace CEO? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I assume she, I do. Okay, she was, like, a disgrace CEO. Like, she had that, like, blood testing company that was defunct. You should watch The Dropout on Hulu, miniseries about it, also The Inventor on HBO documentary. Really good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she is, like, quite an attractive, like, tall, blonde woman, and uh, she got advice that people, like, she should be attractive, like, that was an asset, but, like, people wouldn't take her super seriously as, like, the head of, like, a multi-million dollar company or billion-dollar company. So she... Um, wore like like the Steve Jobs outfit like black turtleneck suits she wore red lipstick because that's like kind of like feminine Mm -hmm. but then she always had her hair back Mm. um so she always wore like a lot of makeup but like her hair up and like all black um Mm. because it was like masculine but also like feminine and it was like Mm. a way to people like for people like take her really seriously Mm. um like you have to be either androgynous or masculine you can't just be to take her seriously but also like she was young and pretty so it was like she was obviously like offsetting that yeah for sure i think people definitely underestimate pretty people like you know i think that's the underlying part of like what you see in this is just like people underestimating her because they think that she is one thing and that she's a beautiful woman and not just if you're beautiful but if the things you value are like getting your nails done and like your highlights done and like those kinds of things that like are actually really enmeshed in like being attractive like a lot of being attractive is like being wealthy and then like Mm -hmm. your hobbies are just like ways to look better yeah (laughs) like for women like when you have free time when you want to like take care of yourself you like get your nails done you like get a massage like it's all like self-care making yourself look better like you get a facial Mm -hmm. whereas men want to like have free time they don't like go and like pay other people to make them look better yeah <laughs> they just so like kick a footy around <laughs> um so what do we also think about um her relationship with the professor yeah so I think in the film he's sort of like he's like a teacher's aide mm. like I think he's in his final year but he's like helping out yeah. the professor so it's like not that problematic and also like he's As, pretty cute yeah, well, yeah he's pretty good as we know student-teacher relationships happen at university. It's not actually, I think it may be against policy, but it's as, as, you can't date them while you're their student, but I think you can date them after they, mm. you know, either graduate or like leave your class. Mm. I've had cases where like I knew one of my friends in first year, um, she had a professor who she who was teaching her a subject, I won't say what it is. And um, after she left the class, he messaged her on um, Facebook and the founder and told her that she was so beautiful and all these sort of things. And like, he wanted to go on a date with her. And she just reflected back on the time that she had in her class with him and was like, what the fuck? Like there were times where he like touched my thigh and like, was that all like sexualized? Like now that I realized that you had a crush on me anyways. Yeah. I don't think that's all like in this film. No, I don't think they had like a superior. There was no weird. There was no power dynamic. Except they were working on the case together. They're working on the case together and he was an associate. So Actually, no, he wasn't a 30. He was an associate, which means he was, like, sort of a first year in his job, which is, like, kind of fine. And also something to think about is, like, they are all older. Like, they mm. are all in their, like, at least mid-20s. They've all done a, a separate undergrad. Mm. Um, It's not, like, an 18-year-old, like, first year. Mm. Um, But, yeah. Still, I, I mean, I feel like you could, like, dissect it now. I feel like it was still in the time when, like, that was quite hot. <laughs> on Sleeping with Students by Amir Srinivasan. It's, like, an essay. It's really good. I'll check it out. Okay, and the final speaking on so the final thought speaking on how to attract men, the bend and snap. <laughs> I never got this. I never understood what this meant. Like I was like, how does this work? Why would it why would it attract any attract anyone? <laughs> I think maybe if you like reduce that down into like um 
you know, bending over mm-hmm. and then like getting back up and like, you looking know, st- sticking your like chest out, like, and looking confident, like, yeah, that could be like a move, but you'd have to work it into a situation where you like, you know, drop something. Yeah. For all the feminism we're talking about, it really feels like, you know, two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> like that is not a, not necessarily a feminist move, but um speaking of women and feminism let's go on to our next topic about female judges on thursday 29th of september 2022 federal attorney general mark dreyfus announced that federal court judge justice jane jago was to be appointed to the high court of australia to replace justice patrick Keane. alongside chief justice susan kiefel justice michelle gordon and justice jacqueline gleason these four women out of seven bring the high court to a female majority for the first time in its history nice So let's start with just some basic facts. There have been 55 justices who've served on the High Court since its formation in 1903 under the Judiciary Act. Only six of these total have been women. In 1987, Justice Mary Gordon was appointed as the first female justice and Chief Justice Susan Keeple is the first woman to hold that position. So obviously it's interesting when we talk about these statistics, we'll go through some more later, um, because as we know, there are a lot more women who graduate from law than actually end up in, you know, the chambers or in corporate law. Mm. Um, what do you think that's a result of? Um, I mean, I think it's a result of lots of women like leaving the profession mm. earlier, not practicing mm. and also just like not um, advancing. I think when you look at the statistics, like there's a lot more younger solicitors who are women Um Whereas by the time you're at the bar, you're later in your life. By the time you're on the bench, you're later in your life. And I don't think that we've seen um, that like flow on yet from all the women in law school. Because even if you look at, um, you know, Justice Mary Gordon or Susan Kiefel, I think when they were, were at law school, there probably weren't that many women. Mm. So there hasn't been that flow on effect yet. So yeah. like maybe it is just a matter of time. So like I think Mary Gordon was like, the first woman to get the university medal at Sydney for law, like really? studying part-time. And like even Susan Kiefel, like she didn't go th- get into law in like through a traditional pathway. Like she's, she left school at 15 after doing the school certificate. She was working as a receptionist and then she was working for some barristers and decided, you know, she could do that. So she started le- studying law like part-time um, and then, you know, got admitted and then went to the bar that way. But it's not that, like, conventional path of now we all just, like, you know, do the HSE and just study law. And I feel like the the way of getting into it and, like, it even being seen as an option for women wasn't even around back then. So, like, these women are, like, quite remarkable. Mm -mm -mm. Um, Whereas now it's, like, almost, like, you feel like it's, like, so saturated. Mm. Um, And, like, where I work, like, I think there are a lot more, women who are juniors and like junior solicitors mm. um but it's about yes, getting up to that like higher partner level mm. I think in corporate law a lot of that might have to do with the lifestyle to be honest and to do with like maternity leave and like having children mm. um but then that is a problem if you're at the bar for example with like equitable equitable briefing so they're obviously less female solicitors, but uh, sorry, female barristers, but they also get less work. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Was that just like, is it just like a natural choice or is it because like of the things like maternity leave, like they just assume that women won't be around or whatever? Um, I think that it is probably a combination of stuff, but I think it's just like they are less well-known, like really prominent male barristers, like you would just keep giving them work because mm. they've like been successful. It's probably harder to establish yourself. Yeah, I find that this is obviously just purely off just experiential knowledge. But I feel like to be really successful at law, like you need to have like drive, like you need to be like, this is the way I'm dedicating the entirety of my life. And of the women I know, I just don't feel like many of them have like as much keen interest in being like, I'm going to be like a judge one day. Whereas like a lot of the men, like I think of like, I wouldn't name them, like I I wouldn't say their names, but you know who I'm talking about are very much like this is what my career path is where a lot of women are like I'm just kind of vibing out like maybe I'll do some private yeah. stuff and some public stuff and I think some of that is due to just like you don't grow up seeing yourself exactly. in these positions but I also think that maybe that kind of like <laughs> sense of ego yeah of like, I'm gonna be on the high court the is power, like the confidence yeah well, self-confidence to be like I I'm heading on this one pathway and this is the pathway yeah and that's why like someone like 
Elwood's and Legally Blonde is like quite significant. Yeah. Even though she's like this quite caricatured version of a, you know, a feminine woman, she is like very much helpful in saying like, set your mind on something mm-hmm. and you can achieve it because we're all capable of doing that. Yeah. I think kind of this is a controversial opinion, but. <laughs> Which may be cut out. <laughs> but um, obviously, we know about like gender pay gap and stuff. And I think a lot of that is just like women going on maternity leave and not being promoted and just like women not being put forth for promotions and things like that. Um, but I think as I've like been in the corporate environment more, it is quite a demanding lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't actually think there's like heaps and heaps of pride in like working like that much in like it probably is true. This I sound like Jordan Peterson. It's like <laughs> true that women probably are more attuned to like other attuned. You're uh, getting into financial <laughs> feminism no, here. To just like if they have children, they they always end up spending more time with them. Women who work actually do more domestic labor and things like that. And not that that like holds their development. Um, although like there is sexism that like makes people perceive you as like maybe less capable. But I also think that like if someone was like, yeah, I don't want to like be a partner because like it requires me to take this much time away from my family. I would like respect that. Mm -hmm. It's not like necessarily more respectable to like be making heaps of money in the high power position because Mm -hmm. that's what men do. Mm -hmm. Like maybe instead of like making women be more like men, more women working harder, more women being more masculine and assertive, we should change our whole framework of what success is. Mm -hmm. And like everyone should just work nine to five and spend time with their children. I don't know. I would snap (laughs) that if it wasn't so, you know, cringe to do that. I also think, I, I wonder as well about the distribution of women, like, like what, what jobs women are choosing. Like, I feel like I know a lot of men who go into, like, the real corporate thing and they want to, you know, w- you know, represent mining companies, whereas a lot of women <laughs> I know, like, want to go into, like, human rights or, like, yeah. Aboriginal legal service, like, anything, like, more. I wonder what the distribution yeah. around that is. I also think, um, you know, like, just on my point, the director of public prosecution, Sally Dowling, she was the first woman to um, become a senior counsel um, while working part-time as a barrister. Did you Google her? No, I knew that. Because, like, she's quite well known for the fact that, you know, she had three children, so she worked part-time, but she still became a silk, Mm -hmm. um, which people had never really, like, that's never been done before. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, that's, like, a great example of, like, how you can, you know, do both and... um, Mm -hmm. That, that's like possible but a lot of women apparently at the bar they technically work part-time in like the briefs that they accept and stuff but they actually don't tell anyone because like you think you'll get less briefs you think you'll get less work or be mm. less respected if people think that you are like not as committed whereas there will be probably be some like 65 year old man <laughs> who never had kids who will like be available to mm. like read your you know contracts all night fuck so more women than men graduate from law school. Since 2011, the number of female solicitors has increased by 67%. So that's like to my point of I think that the wave of is, it might be coming. Like it might be the case that there are just, just more. We're backing up from, there's yeah, a lag. There are more women like in the partnership, on the bench, like in a few years because the amount of women in law school has like increased exponentially. Mm. Um, that's kind of yeah. great. Um, the legal profession continues to be comprised of more female solicitors, 53%, than male solicitors, 47%. And this is consistent across all states and territories. Yes. And 70% of solicitors below the age of 24 are women. Wow. So I think that's like quite proportionate to the fact that there are like more women graduating. So there are yeah. more like female graduates. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's huge. That is huge. There are more male solicitors than female aged 50 and older. Okay. So I think that's where like the it's gap like the is. the aging population. <laughs> yeah. So 78% of solicitors aged between 65 and 69 are men. Mm. Um, more than half of all female solicitors, so 52%, have been admitted for 10 years or less. So I think, yeah, again, that's that timeline for you. So more women in corporate law are female, but more men are partners. So, for example, you have like top tier law firms who's like, gender targets are like 30% female partnership like they're not there yet like that's what they're aiming for which isn't even half obviously (laughs) um yeah yeah I mean that's the thing it's like legal profession I feel like is something you stay in for a long time like and it's also one of those things where it's not something you move around a lot like it's not you don't just like jump into different professions and try things out like you're on a pathway and so it's like you get stuck on it whereas like 
it's hard to shift those people out. So like people mm-hmm. aren't just retiring when they reach like whatever age, like they're trying to stay there for as long as possible because it's lucrative and it's influential. Yeah. And there is quite a linear path if you were like a solicitor who wants to become a corporate partner or a barrister. Exactly. Like it's quite straightforward. And because you spend so much time, it's just, I don't think a lot of people want to retire, which means it's hard to replace them with women. Yeah. Um, and then there are 602 female barristers practicing in New South Wales compared to 1,822 male barristers. And that means only 24.8% of barristers are female. Yeah. So a lot less women, I think, go to the bar. It's like mm. you, they don't see themselves as like in that high powered profession. It's really hard to, you know, you, you're self-employed and you have yeah. to, yeah. To be trained up as a barrister obviously is like so much reliant on the preferences of people who are already in that community. Mm. Like, for example, if you've interviewed for like with barristers and you've interviewed with judges and it's like, do they like you or do they not? Like that's pretty much the only way you can get a leg up. It's not like... Is it like like we were saying? There's not like a HR department who are overseeing like the diversity yeah. of like who who's being hired and all that. Yeah, stuff. it's honestly rather opaque. Um, I also it's also only 52 women are senior counsel compared to 328 men in New South Wales. So that means 86% of senior counsel are men. That's heaps. Mm. I also think that's due to the age thing as well because you have to be like pretty established to become a senior counsel, and so you have to be like at least in your middle age. Yeah, you do quite old. Um. But yeah, those that's that's the situation at the moment is obviously like increasing and obviously all those like young women who are solicitors will like, you know, go forth into like these these roles. But I also think it might be interesting to see how like the great resignation and like things like that um, post COVID where we've like redefined our relationship to like work culture mm. actually intersects with those like gendered um, preconceptions about like, yeah. um you know, there's one thing to be like, oh, I don't think I'll, like, be successful in this industry because I have imposter syndrome. But it's another thing to be like, is this what I value? Mm. And I wonder how those things will, like, mm. co- coalesce. I also wonder how race plays into all of this. Like, we haven't really mm. touched on, you know, diversity in terms of ethnicity amongst all these people. Like, even though we see, like, successful women, a lot of them are just white women. Oh, yeah. Even in law school, like, it is, like... I don't actually know what the statistics are for law school. I think in law school it's, like, probably quite diverse, quite diverse especially at law schools that aren't ours. <laughs> um, but Correct. I think it's the same thing of, like, there are, like, those barriers to entry. Like, some are, like, imposter syndrome. A lot of them are external. Um, it's sort of racial bias. Yeah, really interesting. Like, I, I, there was a person at work who um, went by a kind of white name um, and then once he was um, got a clerkship and got a full-time job he he started going by his actual Chinese name which is mm-hmm. how everyone in his life knows him but he applied under a different name wow um yeah yeah I mean like it's what goes on so for those of you who don't really know what we're talking about when it comes to the high court and I know like a few people don't um we'll give you a quick overview overview so the high court is made up as we said of seven justices currently that's Kiefel, okay, correct me on who's been replaced. Kiefel, Gagler, Elderman, Gordon, <laughs> Keane, Stewart, Gleason. So Justice Keane is turning 70, mm. so he has to retire. Yeah, so there's an appointment limit of 70 years old. So their building's located in Canberra. So basically, what do they do? Section 71 of the Constitu- Constitution vests the judicial power of the Commonwealth in the High Court. So they're the peak court in Australia. But they only became the peak court um, after the Australia Acts were passed. Um, We used to have appeals to England. We don't do that anymore. We don't. So what do their kind of jobs are? So firstly, they hear appeals from the Supreme Court. The hierarchy kind of goes... Or the Federal Court. Or the the Federal Court. So the hierarchy is for the state and territory courts that you um, start kind of the local magistrate courts, then go to the district courts, and then the Supreme Court, and then the High Court, which you can't appeal. And then through the Commonwealth Courts, the Federal Courts and the Family Courts up until the High Court. And so that's like main jobs are hearing appeals or they'll have original jurisdiction to hear any constitutional issues or issues between states. So that's what they're kind of doing every day. So, for example, from 2020 to 2021, they decided 377 special leave applications, 43 appeals and then four cases involving the Constitution. So we don't hear a lot about High Court cases. Probably the most famous is the Marbo decision, which happened in 1992, which recognised native title. Um, so what this decided was that Crown sovereignty did not prima facie extinguish native title and that Australia was not terra nullius, but um, rather native title can exist, um, but it's on a case-by-case basis because the Crown can still extinguish the sovereignty um, of Indigenous land rights. Um, the other really big one is the Lang and ABC case, um, which was important because that's where we get our implied right to political communication. Um, 
we don't have the explicit right to a freedom of speech. This is what the you know, judiciary implied into this case. Basically, Lang was the Prime Minister of New Zealand. He was spoken about in four corners um, relating to political donations. He claimed this was defamation, and the ABC got off on the defence that was implied freedom of communication. But this is heavily qualified. So mm-hmm. it's not like a free-range, you know, uh, right to freedom of speech that you hear invoked a lot in American TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favourite justice? <laughs> this is kind of such a lame <laughs> law student question, but do you have a favourite justice on the High Court? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I'm one of those law students. There are um, people who definitely do. Yeah, I don't think I'm one of those. And we'll talk about this. And mm. there's like so much less of that like culture of like personality, cult of personality around judges in Australia. Definitely, I think there is. I think the one celebrity who you know people always <laughs> talk about like Kirby being like the the kind of major justice celebrity. Um, that's just because he really puts himself out there. He puts himself out there. <laughs> Respect to um, Michael Kirby. He was on the High Court. He retired. Um, he had. He was very famous for dissenting. Of the decisions that were made, he would dissent, and his ratio for that was forty percent. And um, he was a great champion of queer rights. He's famously um, a gay man, and he was also a USC president and an SRC <laughs> president. So I've you know had an opportunity to meet him before. He's very nice. He's very very fun to talk to um though one time I did go up to him and I referred to him as Kirby like I said hey I was like, Kirby I was like hey Kirby and I was like oh <laughs> no what have I done um another really you know great one that I personally like is Chief Justice French um that, like, French was really significant because they helped co-establish the West Australian Aboriginal Legal Service and um they weren't afraid of judicial activism which you know is this really strong mm-hmm. taboo in um you know yeah in the law generally uh, yeah, I don't know if we should have judicial activism. I think in Australia, it's like quite a different kind of thing. I think judicial activism in this case is obviously just a watered down concept of like, obviously when we think judicial activism, we think like the abolishing of like Roe in America. But like, mm. I think in this case, just like acknowledging that like, you know, Aboriginal people should have rights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so judicial to activist. Um, so let's talk about now the American situation. How they appoint their judges. Yeah, so I think it's interesting to draw a contrast um, because our relationship to the High Court and to these judges is like vastly different. Um, so in Australia, uh, it's quite a kind of private, opaque process. Mm. Um, they are, you know, formally appointed by the Governor General on the advice of the Prime Minister, who is informed by the Federal Attorney Gen- General. We don't have a constitutional process. So in 2007, constitutional law expert Professor Anne Toomey stated that a government may appoint a judge for a range of reasons, including adding some form of balance to the court, state, sex or expertise in a particular area of law in which the court is lacking, or because a judge is the leading jurist of their generation, or simply because a person is an uncontroversial compromise when views are polarized in relation to other candidates so you will have maybe a slight slant but it's never blatant or outwardly based on their politics you will rarely know the politics of Mm. um a judge except for what you can glean from their decision making but they would never be outward about it it's quite inappropriate like for example i recently read something where someone had tabulated every decision that the um, justices have made and where they sat like on relation of financial matters and human rights matters and all that sort of, all that sort of stuff and they could see like liberal um like kirby for example was incredibly liberal whereas like even someone like cleful was a bit more conservative mm. like like you can track it a little bit but it's super subtle it's never like a spectacle like we see in the american system where like yeah it is so deeply political so on that the um in the u.s the president nominates um whoever they want to appoint to what's it called the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. <laughs> um, and they commi- then they're confirmed by Senate. And it's run through the political, not the judicial arm. So unlike us with the Attorney General and there's like closed door meetings and stuff like that, this is all kind of through the pol- um, political system. And um, the process is strictly followed through the Constitution. Yeah. So, for example, um, the most recent was um, Joe Biden nominated um, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson and she was confirmed by the Senate. But, you know, you had those Senate hearings where people will ask you your position on a board or they'll ask you about what is a woman yeah what is a woman and decisions that were made even um you know it was a huge thing with you know the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh when they were asking him about um you know this like alleged sexual assault that he perpetrated and maybe that's a good thing that this is like this public space in which to like mount those challenges but it's also like just so foreign and so political Mm. and 
it gives rise to the activism that we talked about yeah it obviously does have something to do with like the decisions you make and the kind of person you are but like here like that would have nothing to do with your like your opinions on a child book yeah children's book yeah did you see that when um yeah what's his name ted cruz ted cruz like held up um a book called how to be an anti-racist baby or something like that by Ibrahim Kendi. I can't remember. I think that's yeah. what it is. And they were like asking her if like she thinks that you should be allowed to tell children they're racist. Yeah. And it was just like, what does she this is... have to do with anything? And like, you know, good for her. Like she really tried to pull it in and be like, you know, this has very little to do with anything I'm here for. Like obviously they're trying to just be like actual jurists and like um, barristers yeah. or whatever, like their experience but speaks for that. Even the like appointment where like Joe Biden gave himself the mandate where he was like, I will appoint a black woman to the mm. Supreme Court. It's like so infused with identity politics, obviously. Mm. And like, that's obviously a good thing that there's a black woman on the Supreme Court. But this whole idea of like, it's it be, it's a political statement yeah. who you appoint and like, as if like, it's it's kind of sad that it's like, obviously she will make more progressive decisions. Obviously the decisions she make will be better for the black community mm. when like, really the whole point of the law especially at the appeals level is that it's like very case by case Mm -hmm. and um I think that's the difference though in the Supreme Court is like they do have the power to make like sweeping social change so like the banning of abortion or um legalizing gay marriage Mm -hmm. those things are in the hands of their Supreme Court because they have a bill of rights Mm -hmm. um whereas our our high court doesn't end up like mm. deciding on those issues they're very much left to the legislature and so they don't have as much of like a political sway and they're not just like a fucking arm of like <laughs> of political institutions like they are definitely meant to be mm. like an independent body like we have the separation of powers mm. which we inherited from the u.s oh, but i feel like i don't know if they're keeping up with it that well i also just think like the outcome obviously of having more diversity on the supreme court is a good thing like obviously we can't we we we, we don't have the superiority in that sense like we're not like look it's just working as it is currently like yeah with the, with the limited numbers of like um, women let alone you know women of color or people of color really on the high court but again it doesn't learn a lot of confidence in your judicial system when you completely politicize every decision you make and it completely defeats the purpose of having a judiciary um when you do stuff like this yeah so like the whole the function of the government is being bastardized by this process like the function of the, the separation of powers but again it in some ways, I mean, it, I don't know if it can solves like the actual issues because, like, I don't really love to subscribe to the idea of IPO where, like, uh, just because someone inhabits an identity that they necessarily work and function in support of that identity. Like, the great example is the woman who replaced RBJ. Who yeah. Was, like, a, RBG. Sure, RBG. Well, <laughs> uh, RBG, who is, you know, really a right, conservative. Very conservative. Or Clarence Thomas, who's, like, on the Supreme Court. Who's a black man. Who's a black man, but he's, like, the most right wing justice. Exactly. Like, IPO can't, you know, be the only reason we make these decisions it's just interesting that you know they become like little pawns in this like very political game like you know joe biden is saying this so he gets more black voters like yeah that's not necessarily like the the you know the the ring of like you know progress that we're hoping to see yeah i also think it is ridiculous that they have a lifetime appointment like you shouldn't be like making these judgments when you're 90 years old like you'll see now like i think 70 is good yeah you should retire you deserve it yeah Yeah, like rbg rbg trying to like hold on hold on to life to life so that she didn't die in donald trump's term so that he didn't get to appoint a judge who would then lead to a right-wing majority on the court so that Roe v. Wade was overturned, which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like, she shouldn't have to, like, cling to life. Yeah. like To uphold, like, the whole judicial <laughs> structure of the country. Yeah, to, like, make sure that abortion doesn't become illegal. Like, that is Ridiculous. terrible. Um, But I do think on RBG especially, a real cult of personality develops mm-hmm. around these women, particularly, I guess, for her, because she was, like, a, you know, a female judge and she was so successful and she did a lot of work early in her career with, like, mm-hmm. the ACLU and women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think a lot of that is great, but it's also just a product of their system. Like, mm-hmm. people love Susan Kiefel and, like, they think... In that, theory, but I wouldn't know what yeah. she looks like. And they think that she... <laughs> I, I wouldn't pick her out and crowd and be like, and that's they think people. That it's great that, like, you know, she's obviously a very successful woman, but, like, we don't care... We don't care about her personality mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, you know, I don't about any high court justice ever. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably like a good thing. I think that like the conflation of like celebrity and politician and like judge, um, it's toxic. It's it's, like toxic. And it's just like, 
I, I don't think it's it, like, lo- it doesn't lend itself to the objective decision making that you necessarily you require from having someone who is on the supreme court or the high court yeah and it's like they have like you know, a base now and they have like responsibilities to like effectively like constituents who are like now also fans like it's just a really complex um, yeah. political obstacle they shouldn't have to be encountering yeah and i obviously think also like the entire legitimacy of like the lower level courts in the u.s where like they elect their judges mm-hmm. is ridiculous absolutely <laughs> ludicrous like the fact that you campaign to um be yeah. like voted in as a judge oh it's and everyone makes fun of it whenever we're in law class everyone's always like what it's so ridiculous yeah and so like i think it's interesting that you know we obviously have kind of a hybrid system of the uk system of like responsible government and um the u.s like separation of powers and so like our constitution is structured in those three branches Mm. um like the legislature executive and the judiciary and so like we kind of trying to emulate them but like why is this system so fucked literally (laughs) actually it's it's interesting how significant like i I wonder really if like the the celebrity issue does play into it significantly and i guess like everyone's ego like Mm. the ego of the politicians who appoint them the ego now of like the um you know judicial members who now have like followings etc yeah. etc like rbg who has had like so many movies and tv series made about her right highly recommend oh, yeah, but, but right yeah. but um it's just a weird, weird yeah. facet of america that they're so obsessed with i think that yeah, this whole idea so of like weird. celebrity spectacle like performance like mm. donald trump Posturing. is a perfect example of yeah. that like celebrity turned like president mm. it's like very built into like that that culture mm-hmm. um and um obviously i think it is and entertainment it's just all about entertainment yeah, yeah and i think it's kind of um not a shame but it's it's like people who are prominent in the legal profession who's on the high court people outside the law wouldn't know wouldn't care wouldn't find it significant don't even know like that the high court is the highest court <laughs> um <laughs> no, for sure you know um and Obviously, that's kind of like a shame because, like, it is. They are it's very, very powerful institutions. Yeah. They really do affect your life. Um, but at the same time, I think it's better that they are just viewed as like this independent, like, branch, Trusted. and and they have le- legitimacy, and people don't really like question it. Um, because they don't have to. Because but, yeah, it's like you know, rather than it being yeah. like a, a like a spectacle and um, this like political process mm-hmm. that just like completely delegitimizes like the point of the law which is like reason objectivity neutrality justice justice yeah i guess like obviously (laughs) that too (laughs) this whole thing is obviously devoid of things like talking about critical race theory and whether like the high court itself is like serving everyone in australia and all that sort of stuff like we could talk about the treatment of like some of the decisions around refugees Mm. that have been made in the courts of course around like indigenous people um and obviously that's obviously a reason why someone would distrust the high court and would believe it to be extremely Mm. politicized just nature of like everyone being white on the on the high court but yeah but again like it doesn't take away from the fact that it's still important that people don't just see it's not so obvious that people are making political decisions when they're Mm. making decisions on the high court like they should be driven and, and motivated to not make those decisions and you should make way. it based on the law and if and the reason. law and if the law is wrong then like that is like the, the legislature's job is to change the law exactly. um but like i think it's a good thing that they make those decisions and they're not influenced by those like external pressures mm-hmm. like um you know in the supreme court like they've just become like a fucking branch for like the christian right to like get rid of abortion and like that's so blatant in that decision making mm-hmm. whereas here i think a good example is um cardinal george pell's appeal Mm. um where he won his appeal in the high court Mm. um and i saw a lot of posting about it which was like this is a fuck decision like i can't believe they're letting this guy off and if you actually read the decision um it's just an evidence law problem it was a technicality it was a technicality and like obviously that's a shame and that's so common and if you study evidence law like Mm. the amount of appeals that like are upheld just because like there was a problem with the evidence and like forgot to do something yes and just poorly instructed the jury those kinds of things and like that sucks because like he should be in jail but it's not that they don't believe that they're making decisions purely based on evidence law and I think in a different climate, they would almost be expected to maybe fudge the law um, because it would be politically uh, better, especially in the context of the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, uh, to have, you know, dismiss the appeal. Um, But I 
think they made the right decision on the facts. They adhere to a higher principle in law, which is like you have to all apply um, the technicalities and the practicalities of law. Like yeah, and like the ever- rule of law. The rule of law. And I think that that is important. And I would like rather live in that system mm-hmm. um, because there is that awareness of like these broader principles and that are, that are I, more important in in the grand scheme of things. And it's kind of but a like, shame when people obviously lack that awareness because we are less engaged with that like um our like legal institutions and so people kind of criticize the court on that basis but they're also completely immune to and not responsive to that criticism because they don't have that political mandate it doesn't affect the person that appointed them um and and their leadership and and their time in government the way that you know decisions um made by uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court in the US were a direct reflection of Trump's politics. Yeah, but I also think like it is true to say that like just because they represent you know the legal system like doesn't mean it, it, it always loans itself to justice. Like I think it is not just this person was not able to get like the the decision made based on like the lower court's decisions mm. because of a technicality like that is obviously an injustice yeah and it's and there's so much injustice in evidence like i swear every single case you read was just like some sexual assault case in which somebody got off because the jury was pro- pro- not properly instructed or something and then it's really like, up to like the prosecutors if they want to take it back down and re-prosecute and they often don't because it's oppressive or it's too much effort like lazarus and that's so like disappointing um and that is a function of the system and a function of like evidence law and like prosecutorial discretion that like probably should be addressed somewhere else but if your job job is just to like judge the case on its individual facts then i don't have a problem with that exactly um it is it is unfortunate it's an unfortunate part of law anyways let's move on to wrap up let's wrap up Okay, so two weeks worth of Kardashians, we have to wrap up. Yes. Week one, season premiere. We loved. Yes, we did. It was high drama. It was all about the reveal that Tristan had not only fathered another child with another woman, but when Chloe found that out, her surrogate had been implanted with the embryo. They were having another baby. And the entire nine-month pregnancy, Chloe is just dealing with this heartbreak and loss for the family that she wanted to have that she won't have. And she was saying stuff like, oh, you know, I never would have done this if I had known, which is true. And so she had a really complicated relationship with um, the potential child that was coming. And we were like, thank God she wasn't carrying the baby because she definitely miscarried from stress. Like she went into labor weeks early with her first child because she found out Tristan cheated on her. Yeah. And I think what stood out as well was that Tristan was clearly trying to entrap this woman. Like he knew the, like he knew he was the father of this child that was about to be like, you know, brought into the public domain. And he was quickly trying to get control over like Chloe by, getting her like getting the surrogate you know pregnant with their you know embryo and whatever I don't know what's called um so that she would be forced to like remain attached to him yes. and like remain in his life I'm like that is fuck like, yes. that's just a pure abusive relationship yeah and the thing is is that I think you know sometimes like cheating is a symptom of something's wrong in the relationship obviously <laughs> but Tristan it's like it's pathological because he proposed to Chloe he wanted to have this other child with her apparently obviously wanted to retain this relationship with her but then like just goes off and randomly sleeps with random women without protection without protection yeah and it's like it's obviously like she was saying they're at the best point they ever were the relationship is quite healthy and I think that at that point you know obviously she's wrong but it's also just that like this person it's like a pathology like he can't help himself he can't stay committed Mm. um and that's really unfortunate because I think she probably thought she could come back from that and they could repair the relationship and turns out sometimes nothing to do with you nothing to do with how rich or thin or beautiful or successful you are men are shit men are shit (laughs) and also yeah they explore that well um the next episode was more boring yeah so the next episode was like filmed six months prior um it was just like them doing some brain scan with some like maybe verified (laughs) no (laughs) brain absolutely bullshit um being like oh like i can see your brain firing you clearly have anxiety it's like no shit um but like, <laughs> i could have told you that <laughs> um and then like just courtney and travis just making out um cory cory i i really like him like he's like number one boyfriend in the he's, family he's just like very wholesome like he just has not brought drama into this cory is like chris's 
um, boyfriend. And there's the episode opens with Kylie giving birth to her second child, whose name they refuse to give us. Which is annoying. And it's just like Corey being like, babe, wake up. Wake, wake up. <laughs> um, the baby's coming. She's like, oh, I'll get us her favorite snacks. Yeah. Um, um, it was it was entertaining. I think there's just more content for them to cover that's interesting. Mm. But there was still filler. It was beginning. It was so, yeah. Whenever you see Chloe and Chris <laughs> together or just Chloe and she's not talking about Tristan, it's filler. Like, that's the flag that goes up. Um, I did enjoy seeing Kendall um, kind yeah. of be appear on screen. But again, it was, like, for a weird filler subplot. Like, I know there are more interesting things that are going on in your life, Kendall. And, um, and then Kim also went in line with Kendall and I had big, like, uninvited cool uncool sister <laughs> energy she was like i want to go to milan with you and kendall was like okay and then like kim was like oh i want to shout from the crowd and like you know make myself the center of attention and kendall was like you can do that if you want like it was just, like very much like big sister little sister energy but awesome. i want to fly kim air I also kim's fly. private jet with like cream cashmere seats <laughs> ridiculous <And> girls <laughs> um anyway so that's our wrap up uh, tune in next week. We'll have more Kardashian updates. This might become a Kardashian podcast. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, well, see you next week and don't forget to like the video that we're going to post and to follow us on social media and like all our content and give us a review and thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Bye! Bye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Laura <Lord of> you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.